morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my wonderful collaborator on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor, and we are diving into, I guess you would call this a thought experiment. We're not actually giving the text of a proposed new constitution, but we are addressing issues that need to be addressed uh, in the existing constitution. And if there were a new constitution, it ought to be seriously considered. And so we're, it's a thought experiment, though, because we're not actually proposing the text of some brand new constitution. And our purpose really is to wake up the American populace to the problems that exists with our current government. And those problems are, are uh, tantamount to uh, moving, creeping, edging more and more towards, well, tyranny, you know, where you do not have any of your individual God-given rights protected. And, uh, there's, there's no uh, semblance of even trying to stay to the terms of the contract we, the people, made in forming our federal government. Now, the federal government just basically redefines any term it wants and uh, does anything it pleases and says there's no boundaries to its power, to its uh, uh, ability to control our lives and tax us and all of those things that we see uh, of a Washington, D.C. and a federal bureaucracy way beyond any boundaries that uh, were established in our constitutional republic. So this thought experiment, don't don't take us wrong here. Don't say that, you know, we're we're demanding a new constitution at all. We are simply going through a thought experiment to help think through the problems that exist with our current constitution, and that is due largely to the misinterpretation of the document, as well as some flaws within the document that I don't think our founders could have foreseen. Uh, time would tell, and, and things would develop, and issues would come up that uh, they didn't have perfect prescience on it. They knew that, and that's why they provided in Article 5 for a process of amending the constitution, recognizing that uh, there might come points where things needed to be altered and uh, uh, the, the structure needed to be changed. And uh, really, when you consider the more than 200 years of our constitutional republic, it's astonishing that there's only 27 amendments. And actually, 10 of those 27 were all done at once. They are the Bill of Rights. The subsequent 17 over the course of various years uh, were amendments added to the Constitution. So it's a pretty resilient document, but it's not perfect. And that's because really there is no perfect human-created document. Uh, the only perfect document that exists is the Bible, because it was inspired by God and given by God. But any human document, including our Constitution, is not perfect. So please bear with us in this idea of the thought experiment we're engaging in, because we would like you, our listeners, to wrestle with these ideas along with us. And to do that, I invite you to use my personal email. That's dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com. That's dwhitney at theamericanview.com. Send me your questions or your thoughts or or things that you might not agree with uh, the, the type of ideas that we're presenting or even some of the specifics. But uh, we know that where we are at as a country and where our civil government is at, federal and yes, also state and local, is not the place it needs to be to preserve our God-given right to life, liberty, property, and all of the other uh, rights that we have been given to by God. Now, Phil, why don't you launch and give us your ideas here on uh, the structure of this proposed idea of a constitution? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, 
we've already talked about an Article One, uh, and again, a theoretical Article One, which would be a bill or declaration of rights. Um, we've talked, uh, and now we're going to talk about the form of government. And there is no statement in the Constitution of 1787 identifying the form of government created by that document. And this has led to a great deal of confusion about the form of government, with the most pervasive myth being that the current form of government is a democracy. There is no logical basis for the myth, and yet it persists. The word democracy never appears in either the original Constitution nor its amendments. It does appear several times in the Federalist, always in a negative context. These appear in Madison numbers 10, 14, and 55 in particular. Three quotes from Armstrong Williams' comments in the Daily Signal, the Washington Post is clueless, place the concept of democracy in its proper perspective. An elected despotism was not the government we fought for, but one which should not only be founded on free principles, but in which the powers of government should be so divided and balanced among several bodies of magistracy as that no one could transcend their legal limits without being effectively checked and restrained by the others. That was Thomas Jefferson. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. James Babson in the Federalist Number 55. The very purpose of a Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy, to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials, and to establish them as legal principles to be applied by the courts. One's right to life, liberty, and property, to free speech, a free press, freedom of worship and assembly, and other fundamental rights may not be submitted to vote. They depend on the outcome of no elections. And that was Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson's opinion in West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett in 1943. This wisdom to the contrary, CNN reported President George W. Bush's view that the U.S.-led effort in Iraq is a massive and difficult undertaking, but he said it is worth our sacrifice because we know the stakes. The failure of Iraqi democracy would embolden terrorists around the world and increase dangers to the American people and extinguish the hopes of millions in the region. In November 2003, when President Bush made this statement, a significant portion of the U.S. electorate believed that the United States could export democracy, its supposed form of government, to the Islamic Middle East. Two decades later, that electorate has become wiser. At a minimum, we should have recognized that it was impossible to bring democracy to a different culture at the point of a gun. What is the current form of government under the Constitution of 1787? Since it is not specified in that document, 
One must look at the Constitution as a whole and augment that understanding with an understanding of the Federalist Essays. That should lead one to conclude that the form of government of the United States is a federation of sovereign state republics in which the federation is vested with limited, enumerated powers. That, too, should be the form of government under a new constitution, but explicitly stated in Article 2 of that document after Article 1 of Bill of Rights. When the Federalist Essays were written prior to forming the new government under the Constitution of 1787, its two primary authors, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, agreed that the states were sovereign and they were creating a form of government that only granted limited enumerated powers to the federal government, in effect outsourcing certain governmental functions such as national defense. Hamilton used the concept of concurrent sovereignty to demonstrate that it was even possible that both the state and federal governments could tax. Madison used the concept of residual sovereignty to demonstrate that powers not explicitly granted to the federal government were reserved to the states and the people. Madison remained true to that principle, promoting the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to the Constitution. Hamilton, on the other hand, reversed himself once the new government was formed in March of 1789 by submitting subsequent reports to Congress expanding the role of the federal government. These reports employed the dubious concept of implied powers that, in effect, creates an open license to expand the federal government's power without limits. Note that uh, note, there is no suggestion of implied powers in this definition of the form of government under a new constitution, because they are not allowed. If the federal government is to be granted additional powers, that may only be done through amendments by the entities that originally created the contract that forms a federal government. The limited enumerated powers in this definition should not be subject to interpretation particularly by a federal government that existed only at the wish of the states acting jointly. For an electorate educated in government schools, this departure from a federal government as a supreme entity is shocking. The idea makes more sense if we realize that the state governments are the representatives of the people, and those states voluntarily enter into an agreement to outsource limited functions to a federal government to be created by them. We can be confused when considering a social contract at such a level, but fundamentally it must follow the principles of all contracts. An example at an individual level is more understandable and yet can provide the proper insights. Consider two partners in, a ver in various successful business activities, Dick and Jane. They elected their diversified further by acquiring a condominium property, which they planned to rent for income. Their first concern is that they select the right location. They reject an inexpensive condominium in the Watts District of Los Angeles in favor of a number of far more expensive condominiums that are for sale in the South Beach area of Miami Beach. Before contracting to buy one of the condominiums, they extensively research the constraints on their freedom they will have to accept if they buy a condominium in a specific community. 
in addition to determining how pleased current condominium owners were with the management company, they did due diligence of the property management firm, finding it had established a reputation for honesty and fairness. Nonetheless, Dick and Jane read the management agreement to determine what powers were given to the management company by the condominium owners. The, this example provides some understanding, but also has limitations when it's happened to aggregate it to the federal level. Note that the management company was already in existence when Dick and Jane purchased their condominium, and that it had established a reputation for honesty and fairness. Dick and Jane could terminate the contract by selling their condominium to someone else. When the Constitution of 1787 was ratified, it was nothing more than a dream of its supporters. Its opponents had significant fears, fears that had been realized over the history of the United States. Dick and Jane, operating as individuals contracting with other individuals, had little fear. They would be stuck with a purchase they could not reverse. They only needed to find one buyer, and the condominium in attractive South Beach should preserve its appeal and market value. Not so when accepting the so-called protection of a federal government. One day, that government might dictate the water capacity of toilets the citizen might acquire, or even what type of electric bulb the government might find permissible for reading, or worse, it might tell your child attending government schools that he or she was free to change their gender at birth, this to be done without informing the parents. Returning to Dick and Jane, had the condominium seller informed them that a new management company was being formed, that it would have unlimited implied powers, and that the management company would require Dick and Jane to turn in all of their real money in exchange for money the new management plan to print at its offices, Dick and Jane would not just refuse to enter into the transaction. They would recognize it as absurd and inconsistent with the principles of liberty. This is the Frankenstein process in operation, a process whereby a monster is created that dictates how the monster's creator is to live. To protect against the real and demonstrated dangers of such a process, the people must, uh, must not just keep federal government on a short leash, that government must be taught to yield. Today, this federal government, brought into existence by the representatives of the people, the states, has been allowed to do the following. Interpret the social contract created by the states. Determine how many departments it wishes to have and the extent of the bureaucracy that it caused by those organizational changes. Add major branches of government such as the Federal Reserve System, own extensive physical property, and through regulation, exercise property rights over property uh, it does not officially own. Through regulation, dictate how virtually every aspect of life to those who were citizens, but have become subjects to the federal government. Determine what new states may be admitted to the Federation Under a new constitution, the federal government would have a a new, simple mission. 
execute the will of the people as expressed in their constitution. The submissions of the three branches will be legislative. All proposed legislation must have a preface that specifies the constitutional basis for the proposed law. Executive. Executive action is limited to the enumerated powers in the Constitution. Judicial. Judicial opinions limited to statutory law that is deemed to be consistent with the Constitution. The power to identify a law as constitutional or unconstitutional is removed from the federal judicial system and is vested in the Supreme Court of the states instead. Federal courts may recommend that a case be heard for constitutional reasons by the su Supreme Court of the states. Overall supervision of all three branches would be vested in a council of states comprised of three delegates from each state elected for terms of four years by the voting members of the citizenry in their states. They are also subject to recall through an impeachment process originating in the state legislatures. Trials of the impeachable offenses would be conducted by the Supreme Court of the states. Three delegates have been selected for each state to serve two purposes. To allow each state a voice in the Council of States in the absence, disability, or death of the delegate. And since each delegate will vote individually in the Council of States, having three delegates will allow both minority and majority views to be expressed for a state. This will not be possible in the event of absence, disability, or death of one of the delegates. While the day-to-day -day operations will be managed by the federal government, the Council of States, under its oversight function, will have the power to reverse any act in any of the three branches that is deemed to be inconsistent with the Constitution. Serious constitutional offenses, as determined by the Council of States, will be subjected to the impeachment process previously described. The Council of States will be convened at least once per year, but as often as it has business to conduct. It may meet physically or electronically, but in no case is it allowed to create a physical capital. In addition to its oversight of the federal government, its role is to select the nine justices of the Supreme Court of the states, which will have the power of final review over the federal Supreme Court. Let's talk a little bit about the Supreme Court and states. The Supreme Court of the states will consist of nine justices serving nine-year terms, after which they must step down for a minimum of six years before being eligible for reappointment. The initial Supreme Court of the states will consist of three justices serving three-year terms, three serving six-year terms, and three serving nine-year terms. The initial justices serving less than nine-year terms will be eligible for reappointment, but in no case will justice be allowed to serve a term beyond nine years. Vacancies may occur from time to time, which will be filled by the Council of States with appointees to serve out the remainder of the term. These two may be reappointed, but in no case for terms that exceed the nine-year term limit. Impeachments of justices of the Supreme Court of the States will be initiated by the state legislatures and tried by the Council of States. Let's take a look at the federal government under this uh, new scheme. 
federal government is retained under a new constitution and its enumerated powers are not significantly reduced. The power to operate postal service and postal road monopoly is removed, but those functions can be performed by entities outside of the federal government. By describing the federal government's role more explicitly, however, the concept of implied powers introduced by Alexander Hamilton is removed. Also removed are all of the temptations for the federal government to unconstitutionally extend its powers, including the ability to add states and therefore influence the voting balance, the ability to own property and thereby to employ its own arbitrary rules on the use of that property, the ability to arbitrarily interpret the meaning of the Constitution has, that has created the federal government, the ability to control the use of property which it does not own through regulations and a bureaucracy it has created, the ability to create both de facto branches of the government and internal departments that clearly violate the spirit of the Constitution, the ability to tax its citizens virtually without limit, one, under the new constitution, is the federal government's opportunity to add Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as states to create a federal reserve system that creates counterfeit money, a department of education dictating education standards in the states, regulations that require farmers to destroy their crops and livestock, and the ownership of huge tracts of land which have been acquired with the wealth of the people. All is not easy in this new world. Mankind are inclined to suffer, as Thomas Jefferson once said. The people of the United States may be become accustomed to their federal government over a period of time exceeding two centuries. The federal, uh, the current federal government has real advantages during that period of time. It has created a massive free trade zone in a major part of the North American continent. Not until the middle of the 20th century did Europeans realize the advantages of a continental free trade zone. With some exceptions, for example, the destruction of the World Trade Center, the federal government has provided adequate defense against the actions of foreign enemies. Unfortunately, the federal government has also stretched that meaning of the term defense to include offensive operations against other nations becoming an imperial nation and the world's policeman. At the same time, the federal government has reached into and sought to control the private lives of individuals who were once citizens but today are practically subjects of the federal government. When the 16th Amendment to the Constitution of 1787 was passed in 1913, the federal government asserted its power to seize whatever of the citizens' wealth it deemed was necessary for its operations. Not satisfied with that, at the same time, it created a fourth branch of government designed to debase the currency, creating a hidden taxation on the people called inflation. If we are horrified by the growth of government over past decades, we should recognize that government recognizes no bounds on its own growth and will continue to extend its powers until revolution curtails its growth violently. Thomas Jefferson recognized this tendency of the people to tolerate tyranny in their government when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. All experience has shown 
that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. The long train of abuses under which the people of the United States now suffer is apparent. Some would ignore the problem altogether. Others would amend the current Constitution superficially, ignoring its structural flaws that lead naturally to tyranny. Only a new Constitution that addresses those structural flaws offers any hope of returning liberty to the people. Oh, amen. Thank you, Phil. I especially like your uh, your analogy there of, of purchasing a condo. Who would purchase a condo under those uh, second set of conditions where the condo company takes all your money and <laughs> they make you uh, force you to buy the script so that uh, they print out of their own backyard? Well, that's exactly what we have with the Federal Reserve, <laughs> tragically. But we do well to heed uh, what, what Thomas Jefferson is saying there in the Declaration of Independence, that um, when we throw off such a government, that is, if we recognize, look, this current government is not functioning to protect our God-given rights, the only purpose would be to provide new guards for their future security. And that's not security in the sense of, okay, uh, now we're going to face any threats or any, any risks in life, but rather security of our God-given rights to life, liberty, property, and, and so on. Very different than the uh, socialist mindset these days that wants to say, oh, you know, my future security means I'm going to get universal basic income, and future security means I'm going to have free health care and free education, and on and on the list goes that, you know, of what it is uh, the socialists want. But as we uh, wrestle with what would need to be changed that could actually improve it, I want to go back to one point you made at the beginning that I have a uh, slight disagreement with. Uh, the Constitution, it is true, does not specifically identify the form of the government created by the document at the federal level. However, in Article 4, it does say that the federal government will guarantee to each of the states a Republican form of government. In other words, the only states that could be part of this union had a Republican form of government. Now, Includes, of course, a representative form of government that includes uh, that there exists law that is outside the uh, uh, the electorate. In other words, the laws that cannot be changed, the laws of nature and nature's God. And so there's a set of principles because by Republican, they certainly did not mean the Republican Party. It didn't even exist at the point they were uh, crafting the Constitution. But the idea that there's a form of government radically different from democracy, as you rightly point out. So it, it would be, yes, this constitution doesn't tell us what form of government it gives us at the federal level, but it might be implied that it's requiring the federal government to guarantee every state in the union has a Republican form of government, that that would mean, of course, that the federal government itself would function uh, in the form of, of a Republican form of government. Just, just one thought there, but we can uh, debate that. Some other things that I, I'd like to um, interact with you, just kind of ask some questions about how this applies. And I love this idea of saying we need to take out of the hands of the Supreme Court this power that they have assumed. You know, uh, Marbury v. Madison was one of the uh, uh, cases that began the process of saying, well, 
the Supreme Court can review every, each and every law that's ever passed by any state government or by uh, the federal government and uh, strike down those laws. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was the assumption, uh, it was not something written in Article 3 of our, our US, current U.S. Constitution, Article 3 dealing with the judiciary, but wasn't stated there that they have the uh, final say as to what is and what is not constitutional, but it has been assumed over time. So I absolutely agree with you, the idea we need to take from the hands of the federal court, uh, particularly the Supreme Court, uh, the uh, power they claim currently to be able to determine what is and what is not constitutional in, in terms of uh, state laws or even, even federal laws. That's far better as you are, are structuring this idea of a a council of the states, but also a Supreme Court of the states, which that Supreme Court would be the one, the body that would determine that that issue of what laws are constitutional and what laws are uh, violative of the, of the Constitution. And I guess, you know, that kind of raises one problem in, uh, in my thinking, at least, that uh, Supreme Court uh, can uh, be uh, charged with determining the constitutionality of any law uh, that is a law made federally or a law made uh, in, in a particular state. So the issue might arise to say, well, if that that is being done and uh, the Supreme Court, they are being invited by the states uh, to actually consider particular cases. Uh, so would that mean one state might look at the laws of a differing state, let's say, Pennsylvania were looking at the laws of Maryland and say, well, I don't think that and that and that is constitutional and we want to take that to uh, the Supreme Court of the states or would it only be the state in question? So anyway, so some question there about how would the states interact in the Supreme Court of the states uh, regarding choosing what cases? I, I know today in, in how our Supreme Court functions, it's a huge, huge issue what cases the Supreme Court actually accepts. Earlier this week, I was testifying, or not testifying, I was part of a, a press conference outside of the district court in Washington, D.C., of, of that federal district, on a case of, of four uh, pro-life activists who were charged with violating the so-called FACE Act. That's a Federal uh, Access t uh, to Clinic Entrances Act uh, that would claim if you do something outside the entrance or if you interact with people going in, all kinds of different things that, that, that they'd charge you with having uh, committed a crime. Now, uh, it's indicative the judge that's hearing this case just two weeks before five other defendants faced exactly the same charges for exactly the same incidents and they were deemed guilty. And then the judge immediately threw them in prison in spite of the fact that their case is on appeal and hoping to take it to ultimately take it all the way up to the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court answer the question, is the FACE Act constitutional or not? And I argued in my uh, press briefing that it is not constitutional for numerous reasons. We won't, won't go into those now. But the interesting thing to me is that the, the people participating in this all recognize, okay, we really won't get a resolution until we get to the Supreme Court. And uh, so which cases actually get to the Supreme Court are in the hands of the Supreme Court to decide. So they call it giving certiorari to a particular case. So suppose my friends are, as we fully expect, like uh, the previous five, are put in prison by this judge and their case is appealed up to the next level and ultimately appealed to the Supreme Court. 
Well, the Supreme Court could simply decide, eh, we're not going to hear that case. Yep, we don't grant cert on that, and therefore uh, that case is left to the decision of the lower federal court, whatever that lower federal court has decided. That's the way it's going to stand. Uh, so again, granting enormous power here to the Supreme Court under the current structure. And by the way, none of this, that the, in terms of how the Supreme Court functions today, none of this is actually spelled out in our current constitution. Article three leaves uh, a whole blank about many of these details. And what we have then is the Supreme Court, as time has gone on, has been making these determinations about its own powers. You know, it's been it's been drawing the boundaries of its own powers. I remember a, a, a children's story, a children's book. Uh, uh, I think it was Art and the, his Purple Crayon. I may have his name wrong there, but anyway, the the point is, he takes his purple crayon and he draws reality on the wall. You know, he draws a building and he draws a bridge and he draws all these and as he, whatever he's drawing on the wall. That becomes reality, you know, that he draws the bridge on the wall with his purple crayon and then he walks across the bridge. <laughs> it's kind of nice. You create your own reality. It is a fun children's story and nothing harmful in it at all. But my point being, that's what we have currently with the Supreme Court. It gets out its, uh, well, not purple crayon, but, uh, you know, it gets out its black ink well, spills ink on a piece of paper and says, hey, this is the new reality. And, and so, for example, in Obersfeld, they said the new reality is that we have redefined this institution of marriage that goes all the way back 6,000 plus years in human history. And many, many, many cultures have said there is only marriage between a man and a woman, even if a, you know, a culture believes in bigamy. No, no, no. It's only bigamy between a man and a woman. There's no, no mixing of same-sex things at all. I mean, and so this is a brand new idea on the human scene. And furthermore, Almost every uh, religion in the world affirms that marriage is between a man and a woman. But this group came along and said, oh, no, no, we got a better idea. And you have to wonder where in the world did they get the authority to believe they had they had the, the power to rewrite the laws of the universe and, and actually redefine, get their purple crayon out and draw, you know, this is reality now. And the thing is that we see the Supreme Court then being the definer of its own jurisdictional authority, its own jurisdictional boundaries. It, it believes it can draw whatever it wants and it can create reality. And, and so it's like, wow, why don't they, you know, why don't they begin drawing a reality that gravity is suspended? <laughs> I'd love to see them try that. And, uh, let's see which Supreme Court justice would want to be the first to see if the ink they spilled on paper actually works. You know, is it magic? Does it change the laws of the universe? You know, can you jump out of a 10-story building and you actually don't fall to the ground because re gravity has been suspended because these nine justices in black robes in that marble mausoleum up there in Washington, D.C. have spilled a bottle of ink on a piece of paper and created an ink blot that changed the laws of the universe? So uh, I think that Obersfeld case illustrates the extreme arrogance we have in the federal court believing they can uh, rewrite reality. Now, now to be fair to the Supreme Court justices, there were dissents. <laughs> there were some like uh, uh, Justice Roberts said, no, no, this is bad. This is terrible because you go down this road, these are the disasters that are going to happen from that. And, and so there was not, it was not a unanimous decision. But nonetheless, my point is that we have a Supreme Court, perhaps because we were not as specific as we needed to be in Article 3 about the limits upon their power and their jurisdiction, They've taken their purple crayon out and they've written on the wall 
whatever they want, and they now claim, hey, that's reality. You know, we can we can step into that which our purple crayon has created, and that's reality. Two men together equals a marriage. Two women equals a marriage. They've rewritten the laws of the universe and claim that they have the authority uh, to do that. So uh, I love the idea that we take that out of the hands of the Supreme Court and we put it in the hands of the Supreme Court of the states. I guess my question would be, and we can interact on this, is, you know, in that Supreme Court of the states, what kind of authority would they have? And again, this might be something that is, uh, uh, we've talked about last week, the idea of a second tier of documents that explain in, in detail uh, what the proper interpretation of the first uh, level of the document is. And then, of course, a glossary that determines each of determines what the meaning of each of the words, which is hugely important, <laughs> given the redefinition of words that uh, the Supreme Court and, and other federal officials are famous, or I should say infamous, uh, for doing. And, you know, I, I love the elements of taking powers away from our current uh, federal government, power to add uh, states in order to uh, manipulate the uh, the electorate and, and how things are going to turn out, and the ability to own property. I, I believe that if we were following our constitution currently as it is written, and the federal government didn't give it itself these implied powers that Hamilton was so infamous for, that we wouldn't have all the federal parks, you know, or the federal grasslands or federal whatever, you know, all the federal property, because our current constitution does not permit any of that. It says the federal district, which is Washington, D.C., the 10 square miles, and then forts, magazines, dockyards, other needful buildings, not national parks, buildings. And by the way, the mention of that list, they're all military installations. So, uh, you know, a military fort and uh, military installations, a dockyard to build ships, all those sorts of things. Yes, of course. But beyond that, the federal government should not own any property. And by the way, I, I like, Phil, the, also the points you put in that the state, the Council of States as well as the Supreme Court of States owns no property. Yeah, they ought to rent whatever they need to uh, fulfill their functions because we see what happens when the uh, property ownership gets in the hands of, of civil government. They just go wild with that and seem to be unchecked in their uh, in their lust for, well, uh, not just land, but their lust uh, for power. And that's really what it comes down to. How do we guard the human fallible fallen tendency to abrogate power to oneself in a, when you're in a position of power? Uh, and how do we guard from that? And how do we uh, protect we the people from the kind of over-abusive uh, uh, lust for power that we see uh, so often in those who do go into the field of government. And perhaps you could say that uh, uh, the old Nietzschean uh, will to power is what's most manifest in, in uh, sadly, in what we see today. Well, your thoughts or, or uh, feedback? Well, <laughs> to begin with, I, I won't debate you on uh, Article 4. You are correct. And I think uh, I should make uh, the clarification that uh, none of the states uh, can be admitted unless they are republics. So we are in absolute agreement about that. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to emphasize that the new constitution would deny the federal judiciary any authority over uh, constitutionality. It would have nothing to say on that subject. Now, of course, the first question would be, 
uh, the first critical question would be, well, what are they going to do? Well, you've got uh, a ton of, of uh, statutory law that must be based upon the Constitution. So that is the domain of the federal uh, judicial system, to look at that statutory law and to determine whether it's consistent with the, uh, with the new Constitution. But uh, beyond that, uh, they have no ability to define new constitutionality that uh, you know pops into the, the heads of uh, various uh, justices. Now, which cases uh, and uh, the number of cases that uh, the constant uh, uh, that would be would be heard by the uh, <coughs> the Supreme Court of the states. I think the thing that we have to recognize here is that even though that needs to be addressed, that it is a much, much less, uh, lesser problem than the one that we are faced with the federal Supreme Court today. And their caseload, their potential caseload, I should say, is swelled by the fact that, number one, in the Constitution it itself, there are a lot of ambiguities. Number two is that um, <clears throat> you don't have adequate description. You don't have the, the second level that you would have in a new constitution, which would spell out what is permissible and what is not permissible. And three, the whole idea of implied powers is denied. Now, if you consider those three things, think what that does to the caseload of any judicial body, it reduces it significantly. What are we trying to do here? We're trying to take as many decisions out of the judicial bridge as we can, not only for cost effectiveness, but for our liberty. We want the people, through a constitutional process, to define what is right and what is wrong, not political appointees. No. Yes. Agreed. Uh, definitely agreed. And, and you're right. Some of these uh, issues may have to be ironed out, uh, you know, in terms of the details of, of how this works. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love, the, again, the idea that Council of the States have the power to reverse any act of any of the three branches deemed inconsistent with the Constitution. Uh, and I guess my wonder would be, how does that come to their attention? For, and let me just use this as a practical example. This FACE Act, uh, which I was testifying against in the, the press conference earlier this week, um, that act is clearly unconstitutional. I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a specialist. But I could look at that act and say, look, it violates the First Amendment in four ways. It violates freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press and freedom of assembly. Quite clearly, it violates it, it claims to be based on the uh, Commerce Clause. It's like that's an absolutely ridiculous idea. Unless you say that murder is commerce and therefore murdering babies, that's, you know, the foundation that then they try to use the 14th. So they're trying to justify this. Um, and I guess in our current system, a, a person has to go up through the levels of the court to get to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to make a decision on that. I'm, I'm taking it that the Supreme Court of the states would be open to uh, any of the states saying, I, I want to challenge this. It needs to come before uh, the Supreme uh, the Supreme Court of the states uh, so that uh, basically any piece of legislation could be 
be challenged, and, and that would be good. Um, I'm just wondering what would happen if one state looked at laws that are passed in another state. Uh, would that also be requiring the Supreme Court of the states to take up any of those cases? Uh, you know, just, just your thoughts on that. Well, absolutely, in, in both cases. Um, and we have to remember, I think, that under the original thinking and under the, the thinking of the, the new Constitution, the Republican states, if you will, are sovereign. They make the decisions. So the, the actions could be initiated by any citizen within the state legal system. It is not a requirement that it goes through the federal system. Now, something that goes, <coughs> goes through the federal system, because it is within the realm of the jurisdiction of the federal government, uh, and it comes out of the federal system with a the federal judiciary with an opinion that can still be challenged if the if the uh, uh, the council of states looks at it and says uh uh-uh, I don't care what they say you know that is wrong and they refer the, the case to the uh, supreme mm-hmm. court of states okay good good yeah that uh, uh, that system would be far better than, w- than what we have today I, I really feel bad for my friends because some of them are already in prison when their case is on appeal. And the wicked judge there determined that, oh, their act of praying and handing out literature and sidewalk counseling with with women and all of that, that was an act of violence. And therefore, they're a threat to the public and they're violent and therefore they need to be put in jail. And it's like, what? Okay, the baby's being murdered in that building, and they're talking and praying with people on the street, and, and that's an act of violence. Praying, wow! This this judge, I, oh, I'm praying for the soul of this judge because this judge is going to face uh, her maker one of these days and have to give an account for the wicked thing that that she's decided. But so I have friends who are in prison, and and those I was I was with the uh, this this past Monday with the press conference, uh, they're facing up to eleven years in prison for simply protesting out front of the abortion clinic and trying to counsel. It's just uh, unbelievably, you know, so we see the evil of our day and, and I see the difficulty that they face because it's extremely expensive. You know, hire lawyers, each, each level you go up from the lowest to the, uh, the next district level. And then to get to the Supreme court, most often a person has have to, had to spend a hundred thousand or more dollars to, to do that. So it's a it's a difficult process, and we see what what comes out of the Supreme Court. Although we we've seen some good things in this past session, and actually in the previous year we've seen some good decisions. Now that the the court has been rebalanced in the in a direction more towards uh, our Constitution as it was written, uh, we still see many bad things that that have been done and, and are being done uh, as as that continues. So good. Good design here, and uh, I'm I'm excited about this idea to to share it with as many people as we can, so that we can build a a grassroots uh, movement of citizens to say we got a problem here, and uh, we the people are the sovereigns, and we the people can determine that uh, this current government is not serving our best interests, and we need to alter it or abolish it, which is what the Declaration of Independence says we have as a God given right to alter or to abolish. I just wonder if the, the judge that you, you mentioned 
would recognize the the Black Lives Matter uh, riots as being nonviolent. <laughs> yes, probably, probably she would, given how most of the left have treated all of that. They said that's nonviolent, but violent. But when people on January sixth walked into the open doors of the Capitol, being seemingly welcomed in by police officers at those doors, that that was a crime worthy of twenty two years. Well, actually, the guy. The guy who got 22 years in prison never was at in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. That, that kind of puzzling. The, the head of Proud Boys was put in prison for 22 years in spite of the fact that he wasn't even in Washington, D.C. and therefore didn't participate uh, directly in any of that. It's like, wow, <laughs> we have a, 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 a government system that looks more and more these days like a Stalinist uh, Russia, where uh, if you are at all in your thinking opposed to the state and opposed to its actions, you are an enemy of the state and we're going to throw you in the gulag and you're going to suffer greatly for it. Somebody like Alexander Solzhenitsyn comes to mind and uh, his suffering in the gulag for simply voicing some concerns about uh, you know what was being done and, and what Stalin and his henchmen were doing. And uh, that kind of totalitarianism is what I'm afraid we're seeing arise where if you at all speak out and uh, oppose uh, the government, then you're going to be treated uh, to time behind bars uh, simply for holding that opinion, which obviously is the opposite of our our, our federal constitution, First Amendment, guaranteed freedom of religion, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom, which is what they were doing on January 6th, freedom to uh, uh, seek redress of grievances with your government tell the government, look, I think there is a violation going on here. I think there's an injustice. I think uh, there's been stolen elections in some of these states and that those stolen elections means we need to pause this process here uh, on January 6th and do an investigation. And by the way, just a little bit of history, that has been done before. There has been a move, you know, back in the, uh, I think it was the 1870s, I'd have to check. But anyway, where there was a question about election and it was decided, hey, no, let's just pause the process here. Let's do an investigation into whether fraudulent elections were actually conducted. And, and then we'll move forward with the, the process of opening, counting the ballots of the Electoral College and, and determining who has become president. Now, you mentioned uh, several uh, interventions by justices, so-called justices that turn into injustice. Uh, they're really, they're corrupt. These are corrupt justices. If you look at the, the reality today, what you realize is that a corrupt justice can just smile and walk away. I mean, what are the possibilities of being impeached? And even if they're impeached, they're simply removed from office. Given the nature of their, their offense, that's too small uh, a penalty. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why I want to insert the, the Council of States as the board of directors, if you will, of the federal system, such that they can look at that and say, under certain circumstances, if somebody violates their oath of office and it is significant, then you go beyond. Uh, just removing them from office. 
you go beyond slapping them on the hands, there are significant penalties. Like they spend time in jail, not the poor victims that they have tyrannized. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see the history and how the flow has gone basically since World War II, I would say. Obviously, there was changes going on. Uh, the beginning disaster would have been the war between the states. But uh, World War II, really, we, we really turned a corner because kind of after World War II, we became more and more of an imperial nation with an empire spanning the globe with 140 nations or 140 bases. And I forget whether it's 100 nations. Anyway, basically bases all over the world uh, becoming the world's policemen. And that is never, ever the job of our federal government, according to our current constitution. And of course, according to uh, a constitution we're proposing here, never is it the job of our government to become the policeman of the world. Uh, they may have a, a role at, on the high seas protecting American shipping, and that's, uh, I think, fully appropriate. Uh, but to say that we're going to control uh, all the other nations of the earth is, is really contrary to the whole idea uh, of a Republican limited uh, government that our, that our founders uh, constructed. So it's interesting to see that as that imperial nation kind of has arisen to great powers worldwide, our liberties here in America have shrunken apace. So the more the empire moves forward, the less liberty we have here at home. And, uh, you know, get to the point of uh, certain states saying, oh, no, you can't. I, I think it's a New Mexico just passed a thing that, oh, for 30 days, nobody's going to be able to carry their guns, even if they have a, a carry permit and so on. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How can a governor suspend the Second Amendment uh, for their state? This is a this is tyranny. So we have the danger, and, and that's why I, I love the idea we need a constitution that restricts very strictly the federal government and does not imply uh, allow any implied powers to be acted upon. No Hamiltonian thinking can be allowed because once you do, you grow this imperial international monster that uh, our government has become, or as you use the image of Frankenstein, and the monster turns on we the people who created it, <laughs> just as in, in the, the book Frankenstein, the monster then becomes the master demanding of its creator. You do this for me and you give me that and I, I demand this. And that's exactly what's happened with our federal government. Instead of being our servant, serving those needs, as you said, that are, are not handled by the states because the states, by the original design, had the majority of of powers and the majority of protection of our God-given rights. The federal government had a subset of, uh, of uh, outsourced powers, so to speak. But uh, now it's turned around where the states are basically uh, subdivisions of the federal government. And uh, they do the bidding of the federal government, gather taxes for the, do you know, whatever the federal government wants, it gets. So the Frankenstein monster has taken control. It has become the master. And what is increasingly apparent is it's making we the people uh, it's servants through excessive taxation as well as endless regulation and, and on the list goes. I, I think you make a, an excellent point here about an imperial nation. Not only does it turn its powers against external so-called enemies, it also turns its powers against uh, its own subjects. They use the term subjects here uh, as distinct from citizens because once you live under uh, an empire, you are a subject. You can't be a citizen in a, a uh, 
uh, in Empire. You know, I think uh, we have a very, very good example that came out of the World's War II period. Most of us are familiar with the Nuremberg trials. We think in, in terms of the, uh, the trials of the, the top Nazis. Immediately after that, the most important trial, there were actually tw 12 trials altogether, I believe. But the most important trial was the, the trial of the Nazi doctors. And it got less attention, but it was very, very significant in one sense. First of all, they probably used retroactive uh, law in order to uh, uh, find guilty uh, the, the Nazi doctors because they were dealing with something called uh, uh, crimes against humanity. All of that comes out of the, the Nuremberg tri Tribunal. Then there was no question that the Nazi doctors were involved in crimes against humanity. Now, the important thing here is that seven of those doctors were executed. To me, that that establishes law. Now, whether it's righteous law or not, that's that's another question. But basically, uh, it established uh, that this is part of the legal system. The point I'd like to make about this that at the same time. There was something called the Nuremberg Code that was released that discussed the issue of experimentation on human subjects. We all need to take a look at that. There are 10 points, and if you look at the COVID program, probably half of those, those criteria were just outrageously violated, including um, informed mm. consent. Wow, excellent point, Phil. It's like Oh, should we have a Nuremberg 2.0? You know, <laughs> Fauci and company and all of these others that forced upon the American people uh, an experimental use. Uh, uh, I don't even think you can call it a, a drug, um, a shot that uh, was supposedly designed to make alterations in your genetic code. And so, I mean, this and nobody knew the outcome of what this would be. Uh, because the testing had not been done on animals and it had been done on a very, very small sample of human beings. Like, wow, yes, these are crimes against humanity. This is experimenting on humans as if they're just lab rats. And I think in some senses, that's how the, the globalists of the New World Order look at the rest of humanity. And they want to, clearly they have stated, they want to get rid of most of us. Like 90% of us would be about the number that they'd be happy with seeing uh, gone from planet Earth. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we are pleased to bring you the American view of law and government that is, there is a creator God, our rights come from him and from him alone, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights, one of those rights of which is the right to uh, alter or abolish our form of government and then create a form of government that will secure our God-given rights. We encourage you to go to uh, the webpage 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcast there. You go down to the bottom and you will see We the People, the last one on the list. And uh, we have a great host of resources for you there uh, in terms of learning Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, and our Bill of Rights. But join us again next Friday morning on We the People, the Constitution Matters as we come to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. <laughs>